Yeah. Say hello to the bad guy. Bad guy. The good guy come in last place. You smell that dope when I pass by. I let my money at a fast pace. Welcome to Say Hello to the Bad Guy. I'm your host, Locke. On this episode, we had the opportunity to interview Elaine Smith, former FBI special agent who wrote the book A Gun in My Gucci about the story of Ken Edo. We also just released an episode covering Ken Edo in our traditional format, which is available for download right now also. So I would download them both, check them out. But with no further ado, this is our interview with Elaine Smith. We got a special guest joining us today. Elaine Smith, former FBI agent and author of the book, A Gun in My Gucci. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. One of the first things I noticed doing a little bit of research and uh, knowing that we we're going to have you on, I noticed that before joining the FBI, that your husband was in the FBI, but you were a teacher. So yes. how, did the, how did the transition from teacher to special agent come about? Yes, through my husband's urging. Um, when Tom joined the FBI, uh, Hoover was the director. And of course, they didn't have women. And then Hoover dies. And um, shortly thereafter, they were looking and recruiting women um, because they were very close to, you know, really losing a huge lawsuit on discrimination. Um, and that was when my husband started saying to me, hey, I think you'd be a great agent. Um, why don't you, you know, take the test or try? Uh, and I was like, what? I, I don't know if I want to be an FBI agent. <laughs> um, what? You know, and, and I had never had a weight problem. I smoked, and, but I never worked out. Okay. So I started working out. I started running and lifting weights. And Honest to God, I started to get like this attitude, like, well, maybe I could beat the shit out of someone. Maybe, you know, I could take somebody down. And that was what gave me the confidence even just to take the test. Um, I thought being an FBI agent, you were going to be in constant fights and gun battles and everything, which of course is not true. But um I, I, once I became confident physically, um, I thought, oh, hey, let me at this. This should be, this would be fun. So that's what happened. So when you, you moved in to the FBI, became a special agent, and like you said, it was kind of uh, a movement to diversify gender-wise? Yes, absolutely. And when you were transferred to the Chicago Organized Crime, there was very little gender diversity. I think it said you were the, like the second female in the, in the yes. group at the time. Is that true? Yes, the second female to work uh, organized crime in the United States, period. They didn't sign women to organized crime squads. They thought that nobody nobody in the mob would relate to them. Okay. Nobody else, the agents weren't relating to them either. (laughs) I mean, they weren't developing informants or they weren't, you know, breaking up the hierarchy of the mob very quickly. So I wanted to work organized crime because I grew up in Chicago and I was always uh, interested in the headlines like another body found in a trunk or, you know, things like that. Kind of unusual. And so, yes. I'm sorry, go ahead. So I worked up a way to ask one of the supervisors out for breakfast and then I pitched him. 
And um, he put me coming on the squad up to a vote to the guys whether they would have me. <laughs> of course, you know, now later you, you realize how wrong that was. But um, they said, well, maybe she shouldn't, she shouldn't be too big of a pain in the ass. Okay. <laughs> we have lots of stuff to do. Um, and so then I got to get on the squad. That's a, a glaring review. She shouldn't be too big of a pain in the ass. It's not a. Well, that's exactly like overwhelming. what they, Yeah. Yeah. So how, once you got transferred over being the only female, you know, like you said, there's only two in the whole country. How did they, how did they respond to you once you were on the team? Well, the first thing I had was that I was put on wiretaps and I don't know if in your study of crime, um, you've heard about wiretaps. They're incredibly uh, difficult to get. They're also wildly uh, burn up your personnel because you have to sit all day and half the night waiting for these idiots to get on the phone and have a phone call in which they discuss mob business. Or if you're really wild, you can get a, a, a microphone that they put into their a phone at home. And that's all one way, you know, you get to start listening to all of their calls. Um, but it's very intensive. It, you know, it takes someone really monitoring that phone 24 hours a day. Because right, as I understand it, I believe you don't listen to everything. We well, don't document no. everything. So you kind of have to weed through the regular right. day-to-day kind of stuff. Right. You Ho- have to hoping weed through it until the, yeah, hoping that they'll start talking about some criminal activity. If they don't, you have to turn off the recording and you're listening and then go back in to see if they've changed the subject or still on the call. That's definitely a big change from the action that you're yeah. going into it. Kind of stuff that we hinted on, like going into it, you kind of thought, you know, it was kind of romanticized. You thought there's going to be a lot of action and then you kind of end up working a lot of wiretaps. Well, a lot of times uh, mobsters and mafia guys are often like romanticized in media also. And they're portrayed as like Robin Hood types and stuff like that. And you even said growing up in Chicago is kind of what made you interested in working organized crime. When you became actively investigating them, did what you see line up with that romanticized perception? Jeremy, that's a great question. And no one has ever asked it of me. And once I got to know these guys, because I listened to them on their phone calls, and I got to know a lot of them very well. Um, and then we started, we talked to, we, you know, had informants and, and such. I got to learn about the mobsters and most of them were um, terribly uneducated, um, rather dull mentally, very uh, inflated ego. Uh, they expected everyone to give them break down to the butcher they would be bitching about the butcher not giving them like 20, 30% off when they went to a butcher shop. Um, they wanted, they, were, they had the arm on everybody. And as it turned out, they really had to because they, the people, the only guys in the mob that got really rich were the bosses. Tony Accardo, Joey Ayupa, the big names in the Chicago mob, they had plenty of money. But all the soldiers and the guys that were running prostitution and running the gambling games uh, and juice loans, they weren't making a lot of money. 
so for every Tony Accardo, you have a hundred kind of regular guys that are counting on that butcher discount because they're just not making that kind of money. Right. Not a hundred. Okay. Certainly not a hundred. Maybe fifty. There weren't. There aren't huge numbers of people in the mob. They're very, you know. And then it got kind of like the bosses' kids would. Um, you know, every somebody, every so often, somebody would end up in a trunk or you know, shot somewhere, and they thought, oh, "Crap, I don't want to have a life like that. <laughs> I think I'll go to law school." Or, you know, and, yeah. and they turned out to be like normal kids. The reason I kind of wanted to ask that question is that's one of the things that I've realized is a lot of the the mob bosses or the people that do have these big successful careers tend to steer their kids away from that as opposed to some of the lower level it almost becomes like a way of life for the family trade yes yes you're right you're right yeah you know the lower you get on the, the the scale the more the kids are not only influenced by their fathers or their father's friends but the neighborhoods that they live in um and they just become street punks so and street punks don't make a lot of money Definitely, definitely not. Yeah. So yeah. W- once you go to organized crime, you were assigned to Ken Ito. Yes. Now, he, he was a little-known mob associate. No, he was known very well, but no one ever really bothered with him so much because he was Japanese, and they really didn't think that he would really know much. Okay. Yeah. So that didn't seem like a, a slight or something. So when they put you on Ken Ito, that seemed like a potential. It was a slight. It was a huge slight. I mean, it's like, what the hell? This guy isn't even Italian. <laughs> and, um, but, it, you know, the gods were aligned and things happened. And I was able to get, make a federal gambling case against him and indicted him, arrested him. And all of a sudden, the mob bosses say, oh, man, this guy's been around for 35 years. This guy can talk about everybody. Right. This guy knows the crooked cops. Uh, this is this guy's a real risk, and that's when they decided to kill him. Well, one thing I want to touch on the gambling. So I know, like you said, he'd been in the he'd been associated for thirty five years. He, yes. He's been around for a long time, and one of the big things that he ran was a Belita gang. Yes. So we've covered a lot of Chicago criminal background, and you know, so we've covered the numbers game and the policy game. Yes. Is there, is there a difference Similar. between yes. Lolita and the numbers? Yes. Well, first of all, the mob tried to get into policy and numbers. And it was the time the Peacestone Rangers were starting to try to get into it, too. And they decided that they were just too crazy. They were afraid of them. <laughs> and so they, they used numbers, it was called uh, Bolita, which is based on the three numbers that are drawn every Wednesday night out of Puerto Rico. And Puerto Ricans play it at all the little different stores. And, uh, and, and Edo had a really pretty good handle on the Bolita operation. Um, from the records that we seized, he was doing, oh, about ten to $15,000 a week in Bolita bets. Uh, and so that's, you know, a lot of money. Definitely. Yeah. So you put together this case. Since you said it kind of was a slight that you felt like you get put with this guy, he's not even Italian. Yeah. Yes. You, you think maybe a little bit of feeling slighted is what helped you really dig in to make this case that nobody else had been able to? No. 
you know, come up with no. prior to that? No, I, I was felt slighted from the day I walked into the FBI. So <laughs> I was, I was going to prove myself. I was really going to prove myself to these guys. If you want, you want to take the outfit down, then you, you got, they never thought that I would be able to develop and performance and you I mean I didn't have one guy that wouldn't go out for a drink with me I'd go up to him and say hey you want to go for a cocktail you want to go and I did that all the time I did that with Edo Edo never went with me to have a drink but I knew where they hung out I knew where it would be cool for us to go and have a drink um and so I was constantly uh approaching these guys and I got to know a lot of them and I and they didn't find me threatening and I never was threatening. I just sat and schmoozed and they talked Hmm. not about big things, but just gossip and shit. And then later on, they'd get maybe a little more specific. Well, I think that speaks to what you said earlier, where they're all kind of egomaniacs. So the second they have this lady that's asking them out for drinks, they think, yeah, of course. Yeah. So has any woman ever asked you out for a drink? I mean, and it and it was like an FBI agent. Like, whoa. Well, and I think, and I guess this is more an observation than a question. But I've noticed a lot of times, doing research, a lot of guys that are hard to find information on, were because they were a little bit smarter. They kept their nose clean. They ran their operations a little bit better. And Ken Edo is one of those guys where there's not a ton of information of what he did for those years. And I think it kind of lines up that he was also one of the guys that when you invited, didn't want to go out for a drink for you. Yeah, he knew what I was up to. (laughs) He understood that. But now before you guys took him down for gambling, you did have some interactions with him, correct? On the street. Just basically when I would ask him if he'd like to go for a drink or I would call him up uh, and ask him if he'd want to have coffee or something. Um, And then I executed a search uh, on his uh, w- tabulating room. And I introduced myself to him. Um, I was, he, clearly I was in charge of the operation, 10, 15 guys that were following my directions. And Edo was impressed with that. And the fact that I treated him very well. I gave him a place to sit, Hair has hair's tray, you want to smoke, anything you want, you can go. You don't have to stay here, but you know, you're welcome. Uh, and he remembered that. He remembered cops that swore at him and pushed him around and, you know, played tough ass guys. Mm-hmm. And he didn't like that. And he remembered how I treated him um, with respect. Well, and that kind of lines up because some of the information I've read on Ken Edo, he didn't deal well with bullies as a kid. He was, you know, sometimes picked on. So maybe that's something that kind of followed him as an adult. He just didn't like, didn't respond well to that type of behavior. Right. I mean, just think about it. Um, if you're going to cooperate with someone, are you going to pick, you're going to take somebody that pushed you around on the playground or called you an asshole or, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You're going to pick the kid that really, you know, stayed behind or didn't make, wasn't a jerk. Yeah. Yeah. So once you guys arrested him for his gambling operation, initially the outfit bosses believed he was going to turn state's evidence, but originally he had no intention of. Originally he, he never would have turned. 
Okay. He never would have turned. You know, the street bosses actually did turn after a while for all of us in Chicago, most of them. Uh, Edo would have never turned. And I believe he was hardcore. He was a samurai, you know, and, and he had a really Asian attitude that he would, oh man, he would have had to pull his fingernails out. He would not have talked. You know, I never made that connection, but yeah, the the whole samurai uh, lifestyle. Yes. yes, it's a very uh, disciplined, committed. Right. Uh, you, you have your the higher ups that you yes. you respond to. So yeah, that's a that's a great comparison. I never I never that's thought of him. And he actually was a samurai. He was a samurai from his grandfather. So he even specifically told them he had no intention on on snitching, and they they didn't believe him. I don't know that I don't know that he said those words, uh, but he told Vincelano that you know I, I'm not worried about this. I can do 18 months in the jail in jail standing on my head. It's nothing. This is a nothing case, and it really was. I mean, we certainly did later on give these people like you know 56 years and a three million dollar fine, and you know later on we got sentences that were huge but the case that i made against edda was just interstate gambling and he wasn't going to get a lot of time for that now when he left his house that day he did believe he was going to get taken out though is that correct uh he you know he was a gambling man and uh and i, I never knew this but they look at everything with the odds I don't know if you've ever thought that way. Well, what are the odds of me getting beat up or, you know, robbed or, you know. And he thought the odds were not really good in his favor. But there was really no choice because he was ordered by the bosses to meet them for dinner. And he had to go. He mm -hmm. had to go. Either that or he had to have run away. He had to leave Chicago. And... Um, he didn't think that he could do that. And he was, he had no other occupation. People just don't understand that if you grow up in the mob and you're a mobster, you don't train to be like an electrician or a lawyer or, you know, when I'm, you know, you're trained to be, you're a mobster. That's yeah. what you do. You don't have a backup skill set to fall no, back. No, right, on. right, right. <laughs> yeah. So when the attempted hit on his life, he was sitting in his car. Well, what happened was they told him to meet them. Uh, Jasper Kemp, he's in Junkatoo, so told him to meet them, meet him uh, in a parking lot. And they, they were going to go have dinner with Vince, the boss. Never, ever had Vince invited him to dinner. So he got, uh, they got in his car and he was going to drive them to the restaurant. And um, Catuso sat. Uh, behind him and uh, asked him, gave him directions on where to go and park to go to this restaurant. He had never gone to this restaurant. It wasn't a well-known Italian restaurant. Nobody hung out there. And, and Joe knew that, oh boy, <laughs> this doesn't seem good. And then before he's able to pull out of the parking lot, um, uh, he gets shot in the head. Boom, boom. Boom, three times. And he's thinking, holy, I'm getting shot in the head and I'm not dying. So I got to pretend I'm dying. So what he did was he grabbed his head and he pretended that he was in the throes of death, shaking all over, and fell on the front seat of the car. And with that, 
John Catuso and Jasper Campisi jumped out of the car, slammed the doors and ran away because Catuso knew he had shot him three times in the head. Which normally you would think that, oh, yeah. that should take care of it. Yeah, and that was a coup de gras. That's a tough situation to play dead. We all like to think that we know how to conduct ourselves in a traumatic situation, but that's right. easier said than done. And that's a pretty I smart agree. way to do that. That really is so that you have the presence to, you know, now I'm going to pretend that they're killing me because I'm not dying. And I got to pretend to th make them think that I'm dying. Um, that really is smart. And the thing that turned out about Edo was that he had, he was incredibly smart and he had something like almost a total recall memory. One thing I wanted to mention, because I had listened to the recently passed Frank Collada. He was on Gary Jenkins' Gangland Wire podcast. And he was talking about at a time, a lot of Chicago gangsters were reloading their own bullets for one reason or another. And that was had something to do with one of his hits in Vegas yeah, while he had yeah. some trouble. And I just assumed, you know, be in Chicago still, still outfit guys. I had assumed that that would have been the case in the Edo hit, but I had heard another interview with you where you said that was actually, it wasn't because they were reloading their own bullets. It was because of something different. Is that correct? They were old. They had been in, uh, uh, you know, ammo, in good conditions lasts for a, a good time. But if you put ammo in, uh, you know, damp basements or, or warm places with dampness, they start to corrode. And that was the only opinion that I could get out of our laboratory. Uh, what was wrong with these bullets? And they said they were old and they had started to corrode. And so they, you know, they uh, weren't as uh, effective as, you know, full metal jacket ones or whatever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that was definitely, you know, some having a good mindset, being quick on his feet, and just a little bit of dumb luck of them grabbing. Yes, absolutely. Bullets, which plays into what you said earlier. You know, we think of these guys as these, you know, these romanticized criminals. And a lot of times you, they're just kind of stumbling through themselves you know? right right so if you're going to go out to do a hit are you i mean aren't you going to make sure that your ammo is good and your guns cleaned and you know you're all spiffed up for this right <laughs> you, would, you would think uh, I, I yeah would, you don't want to mess this up that's the difference probably between some of these guys that are real professionals and some guys that are just street guys that are making dumb mistakes Perfect. Yeah. I mean, if you were, let's say you're a, a gang guy on the street, just a street a criminal, but you're, you carry a gun and maybe you do some pretty violent things. But if you're, let's say, I'm only going to say about the FBI because that's all I know. If you're raided by the FBI, if you're arrested by the FBI, there is no one there that has not just been like we're going to battle. You've got to get your head there. You've got to practice. You've got to wear the right clothes. You've got to have your gun all ready, extra ammo. I mean, you have to, this is a life and death situation and you don't go into it casually. Yeah. And, and I think that's the difference between so often that if you're a policeman, every day they are confronting life and death situations. And it's really hard to keep your edge all day, every day. Yeah, I've heard uh, a quote before where I say, sometimes comfort is the enemy of technique. Yes. Uh, so oh, you're right. 
Yeah, so, that's very that's very clever. Yes. So Ken Edel, he survives, and he went by. I never even covered this, but he did go by Joe. Is what he was doing. Yes, by. he did. Yes, Tokyo Joe. The outfit guys called him Tokyo Joe because they're not very culturally sensitive. But he no, also never. Just went by Joe, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Now Joe realizes he has no choice but to basically flip because they've tried to kill him. Yeah, I mean, he said they made the decision for me. And he said, I have no choice. Uh, you know, I've just been shot three times in the head. I, they will come after me. They will kill me again. And the only, pe- the only way that I'm going to get protected is the government. And the only one that had approached him was like me. Because <laughs> he did ask for you specifically, right? That's yes. He, he says, I want to see Elaine Smith. And that was when the commander and the chief the commander of the police department that was by his bed turned to a friend, turned to somebody there and said, who the fuck is Elaine Smith? <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, oh, that's my favorite line. That could have been a good title for your book also. Oh yeah. If I could have gotten away with that, you know, they, yeah, uh, they, the people did warn me not to say F-U-C-K that much, but if you're in police culture, I don't know if you've been around it. That is like every other word. I think it's kind of like one of those things. It becomes like a locker room type. Yes, you know, yes, it does. Yes, it does. People get into the locker room talk, I guess you'll call it. Right, right, exactly. So yes. Joe flips, and you were working with him. And as you had led to, uh, kind of alluded to earlier, he had a near photographic memory, correct? Yes, yes, absolutely. And that coupled with 35 years in the mob as an associate, you guys were able to piece together a lot, which basically kind of crippled Chicago outfit. It did. We were able to, uh, you know, he grew up with these monsters. They started out as like street kids, punks, and um, they would guard his games. He'd have these high stake gambling games often mm-hmm. and they would be there and he got to know them and he never really messed with them. He gave them their cut um, and then he continued to make money for them. So they're not going to really mess with somebody that's making money. Right. And doing all the hard work. Um, so that's, that's what it was. And he got to know these guys and they started getting, you know, people die, people sort of retire. And so he knew all of them. After he goes into, he goes into witness protection you were overlooked. Now you're kind of the rock star because you put together, helped put together this huge case. Did you yes. keep in touch with Joe after he went into witness protection at all? Oh, um, I was 17 years. I wrote him up for a quarter of a million dollars to pay, you know, just to get him because he wasn't getting enough money in the witness protection program. Um, I flew him around all over the United States to meet with agents, but I had a caveat that I talked, I took him aside one time and I said, do not talk to anybody unless I'm there because we don't want you saying one thing and then changing it and saying it to another, another, we have to have your testimony totally consistent Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you won't be good as a witness. Yeah. Once you once you're once you're not a reliable witness, then that kind of everything goes out the window. Right. You're not going to be used. But he was used for 17 years. They dragged him, and all the information they gave us, 
started all, you know, jump-started all of these mob cases that had been sitting dormant with the FBI. And uh, it was... Um, it was the spark that brought the mob down. I, I really am convinced of it. It's not me. It was his information. We finally got what I call the Rosetta Stone. I mean, you know, it, it translated who were the bosses and what were they in charge of and who took care of the prostitution and blah, blah, blah. Do you think the fact that you were a bit of a, you were a female in kind of a man's world, he was a Japanese man in... Uh, an Italian culture where the fact that you guys were kind of outsiders, even though you're on opposite sides of, uh, I guess the battle line, you call it, but you kind of were in similar situations Did that give some kind of uh, like an understanding between each other. I think that um, the one thing that I think part of that did play into our ability to relate, but what was it, the only people that he ever trusted in his life were women he had been screwed over by so many people <laughs> that only some only in the arms of a woman or marrying a woman did he find acceptance and love. Huh. Everything out there was just really hardcore and tough. You know, he was interred because he was Japanese right. when he was very young. And this is after World War Two. And you're and he's moving around the United States and there was a tremendous uh, backlash against Japanese in the United States after World War II or during World War II. So having no family really, had run away from home when he was like 12, uh, you know, I could see why he might um, find solace in uh, women that weren't just trying to use him. Okay, so you're Lucky for me. <laughs> <laughs> so your book is called A Gun in My Gucci. Yes. Um, so I know you've been promoting the book. What is what do you have Thank planned you. next? Do you have any other plans for other books or what's next for Elaine Smith? Oh, uh, what's well, well, my husband would love to have me write another book. He wants me and I and I was an English major in college and I found writing so painful. <laughs> <laughs> I should have just changed my major to engineering or something. No, no, that's just a joke. Um I find writing very difficult. You know, if you write, as you do, you, you must write. Uh, it's not easy. It's mm -hmm. not easy to come up with these phrases and how to organize things. Uh, but I do have a, uh, I have a retainer on my uh, movie rights for my book with uh, Donna Gigliotti. And she's the woman that made um, Shakespeare in Love and... Silver Liner Playbook. Some big movies. Hidden Figures, Hidden Figures. Which, and she likes to do stories about women. If you, was, did you see Hidden Figures? I did. It's a great movie. I love it. Yes, yes. Like, who ever knew that? It, it made perfect sense. As soon as you said Hidden Figures, like, yep, that's another story about how... Isn't that remarkable? You know, you know, you, and whoever said that I would just the... the what ifs? just fell into place i hate to take your husband's side on this but you know the book is a big hit thank you, you. Know, maybe, yeah maybe that's the way to go but you know you got the movie rights uh we'll always i will just out. see and i'll make sure i call you and let you know when they when the premiere is and we'll get an invitation that'd be great yes well i'd be fun wouldn't it that'd be a great time
Well, I appreciate your time. I appreciate you joining You're us welcome. today. You're welcome. So it's my the, pleasure. It's a fun story. So the book is A Gun in My Gucci, Two Outsiders Take Down the Chicago Mob. Uh, you can go to agunandmygucci.com where they have information about you, um, the case, the book, everything like that. It's available pretty much anywhere you could buy books. Do you have any social media or anything like that? You want to? Yeah, I have a website. Okay. Gun in my Gucci. Yeah. Okay. And there's a movie, that, uh, a documentary that was made about the shooting. It's called Tokyo Joe, The Extraordinary Life of Ken Edo. Yes. Which yes. That was also right. done with his son too, correct? Yeah, his son was in that, yes. Stevie, yes. All right. So yeah, I would recommend checking that also. So Elaine, thank you for your time today. I really thank you. I look forward to whatever you have going on next. And anytime you have anything else you ever need to plug, we're here for you. Thank you. And just know that I'm following some of your interviews. Louis Apolito. What an evil man. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, definitely. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Thanks. Take care. Thank you so much. You have a great day. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye.